Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Anyhow, let me read some of your emails because we did get a lot of them. So we want to hear from the people as we talk about losing favorite players and legends. Uh, this is from Jordan. Jordan, Evan, I love this idea for the podcast. Uh, you guys were group therapy when we lost to Grom. As a 10-year-old in 1986, Wally Backman was my favorite player on those great Met teams. Although they were loaded with stars, Backman was my guy. After the heartbreaking disappointment of the 1988 NLCS loss to the Dodgers, the Mets further broke my heart by trading Wally to the Minnesota Twins for a bunch of nobodies. By the way, he's right. I looked at who they got back. Nobodies. Guys never even made the major leagues. Of course, Backman has a long post-playing career with his managerial saga and personal issues, but as a kid, I loved watching his scrappy style of play, and I will never forgive the Mets for trading him. No, I get that, man. I get that. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Uh, has he ever called in the station to say that Wally Backman should be the manager of the Oh, Red 100%. <laughs> <laughs> of course he has. <laughs> he knows he has. But what's, <laughs> what's funny is that Wally Backman at that point in his career was – done isn't the right word because he wasn't even old, but he wasn't good. You know what I mean? Like, And so that's not even a defense of the Mets because – that's not the point necessarily. Was it a good decision to trade him? Well, if they got a good young player back, I'd say it was. But at that point, when they traded him after the 88 season, he missed a lot of time in 88, didn't play a full season in 87. You know, wasn't ever really the same guy as he was in 1986. So, but I get it. He's your guy. He's your favorite player. And now they're trading him away for a bag of balls, and he becomes a guy who just bounces around the league for the next four years. Well, look, at Ten, I'm about 10 years old was when they got rid of Howard Johnson, right? Yeah. Howard Johnson, I think, left, what, like, 93, 94, something like that. Right. And I'm, like, what, 10, 11 years old at that point in time. That's my guy. Like, out of all the, the players on the on that team, that Mets team, I loved Howard Johnson. Um, I always rocked the 20 for him. I always rocked his cards and stuff like that. I, I had the, the freaking wristbands and stuff like that. But the point is, like, when he was left the Mets, like, 
it wasn't that impactful because a I think the sh- the strike was happening right. around that time again too. There's a lot of and he, other and he was terrible. So I, he was terrible, and he 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 was awful. So it didn't make as much of an impact. So I I I, I get that Todd Hundley was my guy that made the biggest impact in my. We'll life. get to him in a second because Todd Hundley's an interesting yes. one. Yeah, it, I loved jumping around a little bit. Eras that that is Edgardo Alfonso and. I didn't love when the Mets pretty much lowballed him and allowed him to leave. I look back at it now with history as a guy to know they made a really good decision. You know, it sucks to say that. I mean, it it pained me to see Alfonso was a giant and then like an angel for five minutes and a Blue Jay. But looking back at it, they made an absolute right decision because he was never the same. And I went back and looked at it just to remind myself, like, okay, what was the contract like? He got a four-year, $24 million deal. The Mets offered far less. The, Met, the Mets knew he had a back issue. So the Mets' attitude was, we'll bring you back, but we're not giving you that. And so they only offered him two years, $11 million. And Alfonso, upon signing with the Giants, right out of the gate, said, happy to be here. I wanted to be a Met. Like, was honest about it. They just, they didn't want me. And at first it sucked because he, he wasn't terrible his first year. He wasn't great, but he wasn't terrible his first year. But we were terrible because it was year two of Robbie Alomar. So it also felt like they chose Alomar over Alfonso because they acquired Alomar, paying him that kind of money, but they wouldn't pay Alfonso, who's our own guy. <laughs> you could draw a lot of parallels with that. Uh, but looking back at it makes it less painful because I saw well, they made a right decision. You know, and you could say that about Wally Backman. You could say that about Howard Johnson. And I could certainly even say it all these years later about Alfonso that as cool as it would have been for him to finish his career with the Mets, just being fair about it, he wasn't the same guy. And by the way, he signed with the Giants to replace somebody in their batting order. He joined the Giants in 2003. They were a very good team that year. They won 100 games and lost in the postseason. It was the year after they they won the pennant. And lost the World Series. But he replaced a prominent New York Met. Who was it? Trivia question. Trivia question. Little. Is that Jeff Kent? Yeah, you nailed it, bro. Jeff Kent. Kent go. was a free agent. They let him go. I think he went to the Astros that year. Was it the Astros or the Dodgers? I think it was the Astros. And their replacement was Edgardo Alfonso, which is... Ah, uh, they, they, they're sort of connected in Met history in a way because Alfonso should have been the second baseman and Jeff Kent should have moved to third base. And then obviously the Mets shouldn't have traded Jeff Kent. That's the other problem. What the hell were they doing? Yeah, he signed with the Astros what was, and played there for two years. What was, what, was, what was the reason why they traded him again? Because he was, he was a jerk? They didn't think he was that good. Um, and they thought they had an opportunity to get a really good player in Carlos Baerga. And obviously that turned out to not be the case. Baerga was done. Kent took one more year and then it clicked. And then he became just what he was, which, in my opinion, is a Hall of Fame baseball player. He'll never get in, but he was. Here's a good one from John Perino, and I apologize if I mess up your last name. I've had a few people email me saying, thanks for butchering my name, Evan. I apologize. One of my favorite Mets that I was devastated when he left in 2014-2015 was Eric Young Jr. (laughs) You didn't see that one coming off. Out of all the people, Eric Young Jr., favorite player? Loved him. I was a huge fan of the way he played the game with the Mets and the effort he always gave. The worst part of that offseason is he went to the Braves. Luckily, he came back at the end of 2015 for a brief stint. He'll always be 
one of my favorite New York Mets. See, here's the problem. I see what you're doing over there, and I won't do it. I will not do it. Well, Eric Young was not a very good baseball player. He played with effort, like our uh, our emailer said. He was excellent defensively. He was able to steal a base, you know, go out there and steal bases, stole 38 bases for the Mets in one season. And again, if your age is of someone who was born in, let's say, 2002, so you're 20 years old, I could see it. You're growing up. That's your, that's your Wally Backman. So we cannot be snooty here because we're old men at 39 and four. Are you 40 now, Hoff? I'm 40, You're 40. Yes, unfortunately. We can't yeah. be snooty old men at 39 and 40 and laugh at Eric Young and then you know celebrate someone from the early 90s. I mean, he was a fun little baseball player for a couple of years. Yeah, but he had like a cup of coffee with the Mets. It wasn't like, like Backman was on the team. He won a World Series. Uh, Hojo was, was, had a home run, uh, you know, home run king for a year with the Mets. You know what I'm talking about? What did Eric Young Jr. do? I don't mean to be a jerk when I say this. The podcast is called Rico Bronya. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love Rico. I've made that clear, but he wasn't a Met for a decade. He didn't win a World Series, but I loved him. And by the way, let's address Rico because when they traded him, I was very upset. You know, I mentioned that when we had Rico on. If you didn't hear when Rico was on, check the archives. I was stunned by it, especially when I saw what they got back, which was Toby Borland and Ricardo Jordan with the two guys they got back. What made it easier is that two weeks later, they traded for John Olerud, and I was like, okay, oh, all right, <laughs> not too bad. Okay, that's how you pick it up. All right, I- I'm going to read one of the many emails I got about one guy because there was an overwhelming response to this topic, and it it was to a degree Tom Seaver, but it's not because also you have to be a little bit older for Tom Seaver to be your guy. So there was somebody else. That was the overwhelming answer as a favorite player, as a star, however you want to define it, who left the New York Mets that still leaves a majority of our audience very, very upset and bitter. So I ask you before I start diving into this, because it's going to take us a lot of time to go through all of this. Who am I talking about, Pete? I think there's one guy that really stung a lot. I think I'm going to take a guess, Daniel Murphy. Your guess is Daniel Murphy, and you are spot on. Daniel Murphy is the answer. Daniel Murphy annoyed a lot, a lot of people, and it really makes sense when you think about it. The New York Mets, if you are in your – so I'm 39, so I remember 2000, but that's that's it. Okay, I don't remember 86. I don't remember that. So let's say you're my age or younger, our age or younger. You're 40 or younger. We don't have much. We don't. We don't have the 86 Mets as a memory. We have it as something we've learned about through history. And you know, we've talked a little bit about history so far today. But we don't have that experience. So we have only have two teams that won pennants. The 2000 Mets, the 2015 Mets. I love the 2000 Mets. But let's be honest, a lot of the 2000 Mets were bought players. And we've always talked about it. You're going to have more of a connection with the homegrown guy, with the guy that you saw develop. Edgardo Alfonso, we're just going to have more of a connection with than maybe Robin Ventura. It doesn't mean Robin Ventura wasn't your favorite player. It doesn't mean you didn't love him. But the homegrown guy, it's something different. The 2015 team was very homegrown. 
very homegrown, or at least guys that you saw struggle and became good players. Daniel Murphy, in a lot of ways, is the epitome of that. He was. When you think of a guy who gets called up, you like him right at the top, but then you watch him struggle, and you watch him try to learn how to play left field and be really, really bad at it and have Johan Santana stare at him like he just stole something because he can't catch a fly ball. And you watch him develop, and you know he was always a lightning rod. Like when Murph was called up in 2008, which was my, which was my second year full-time at the radio station, I remember we used to take tons of Murphy calls. This guy could win a triple crown. I'll never forget that call because Murphy was really good in his rookie season of 2008. And then 2009, he played. That's the biggest compliment I'll give him. And in a year in which everybody was hurt, the first year of City Field, you give him a lot of credit for that. Then he doesn't play in 2010 because he's hurt. And then he's pretty damn good in 2011 and just kind of languishes as a guy who we're not sure what his position should be. Should it be left field? Oh, wait. No, it shouldn't. Should it be first base? Should it be second base? Doesn't have enough power to play first base. Doesn't have enough power to play third base. And so Daniel Murphy became one of us, the guy we were just watching learn. Obviously, the 15 team, it clicks, especially when they trade for Cespedes. They go on this great run. And then of all people, of all people, to get red hot in some kind of epic way was that guy, was Daniel Murphy. He was the guy who hit seven home runs, seven home runs in nine games against the Dodgers and Cubs. It was him. He was the one that carried us. He became a postseason icon. And it happened to happen. It happened to occur when he's entering free agency. And so that attachment he created with us as fans was really, really strong. Really stronger than Ray Knight. And the Mets let Ray Knight go after the 86 World Series. I'll tell you right now, the the attachment that the Met fan had to Murphy not even close to the attachment I've heard they had to Ray Knight. You liked Ray Knight. You loved Ray Knight. Daniel Murphy was your guy. And so for him to get to free agency, for the Mets to then treat him like crap, and essentially, eh, we want Ben Zobers. Eh, we're good. They didn't want him back. And I know they made him the qualifying offer, so Murphy had a chance to just accept it and come back, but they really didn't want him back. And then... When he leaves to a division rival, he murders us on like a level that's inhuman. And he becomes a baseball player that he wasn't even close to being with the Mets, but we always thought he had a chance to be. When you pile all that load of crap I put together in one bowl of garbage, you have one of the most brutal Mets to leave you could ever have. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And on top of that, this will always, it's like it's forever linked, these numbers. Three for 36. Three for 36. Because why say three for 36? Obviously, that's what Murphy made. But that's also what the Mets gave Ali Perez. (laughs) 
years years back when they had to re-sign him because they're like, oh, this is gonna be the next. I'm like, if you had Ali, this is what five years ago when they signed Ali Perez, f- f- three for thirty six, and you couldn't do that with Daniel Murphy, the guy who basically brought you to the World Series. What the hell are you doing? And I remember it was it was Asdrubal Cabrera who just clotheslined somebody not too long ago, and freaking uh, Neil, Neil Walker, right? Was that those were those were replacements? I mean, come on, dude! I was I was devastated by that. Movie. So there's there's a bunch of theory. Actually, let me just read this email. For I, I picked one email of the many Murphy emails to kind of represent the Daniel Murphy love. <laughs> the Daniel Murphy astonishment that he laughed and the Mets let him go, and then we'll get into some more details on why they let him go. Uh, it's from Michael. Michael, you're the winner of this. Evan, I'm 22 years old. So while I can't say during my time as a fan, there have been many talented Mets to have lost in free agency in the first place. I do have to say the most devastating free agent loss was Daniel Murphy. Losing the World Series the previous year was painful enough. But for the Mets to to bet on the guy, or to not bet on the guy, whose amazing playoff run carried us to the World Series, to not repeat it in the future hurt a lot especially losing him to who I would have considered the team that was our biggest rival at that time, the Washington Nationals. What transpired in the next two seasons was a travesty. (laughs) He's right. Daniel Murphy wins two silver sluggers. He almost wins an MVP going toe-to-toe with Chris Bryant and loses the batting title by one point. In the immediate aftermath, I mean, I was indifferent like many Met fans, but to see him bat what felt like 400 in the next few seasons against the Mets felt worse and worse every time he stepped to the plate. I enjoy you and Peach Car. Now he's kissing our ass. Thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pile-on effect. It's When you see that he becomes a player he never was, when you see him destroy the Mets at epic levels, I mean, it was... One of the worst examples in a season of one guy killing another team. It took losing him to epic proportions. And I have to admit this. I never thought that his postseason run was going to lead to a renaissance as a baseball player. I really didn't. So my thoughts on Murphy as a free agent was based on what I thought he was, which was he'll hit 280. He'll hit 14 home runs. He'll have a 770, 780 OPS. He's a solid player. That's what I thought he was. I never, ever, ever thought that a postseason run, a two-week sample size, was going to lead to him being an MVP candidate. Because the following two seasons he had was wasn't the same guy. Like he wasn't, he had 25 home runs the first year he left. The most home runs he had hit before that was 14. Like did you expect that? Like, how did you view him in free agency? So uh, I am, I was so pro Murphy. I was one of those guys who was relentless. Like, what the hell are you doing? How did you not bring him back? And people would be like, dude, he's gone. You didn't expect something. I'm like, I did. When this- you have a guy who could actually, when you have a guy who can hit the ball as solid as Daniel Murphy, anything can happen. If he squares up a few, if he gets some power behind it, yeah. I understood his criti- the criticism really is more about his defensive skills. I mean, th- that's what that w- was relentlessly killing him. That's why up the middle they went and got Cabrera and Walker because they needed up the middle. They needed to square up that defense. That was the whole purpose of them not bringing Murphy back was because of that. But his hitting, when you have someone who's a pure hitter, I didn't need him to hit 25 home runs, but 
I didn't expect the power numbers. I did think he'd win a batting title. That I did think. <laughs> I think I thought that maybe early in his career. I think when you're 31 years old, at least to me, I start to say, okay, well, that's, that's it. That's who he is. Their, their number one target in free agency that year was Ben Zobris. They did not get him. He signed with the Chicago Cubs. He had a very good year that year. A good year. Not as good as Murphy, but a very good year that year. And we all know what happened with the Cubs. They won the World Series. If they had gotten what they wanted and signed Ben Zobrist, you know, Neil Walker was pretty good in 2016, so I don't want to throw him out. I just wonder, does anything work out differently? Are the Mets winning a few more games than they did? Maybe a few more. They're probably still a wild card team. Are they beating the Giants in the wild card game? I don't know. I, I don't know if signing Ben Zobrist, who was their number one target, would have made a huge difference. I did read, though, at the time that the Nationals had a deal done for Brandon Phillips, who was going to be their second baseman, and it fell through, and then they signed Murphy as a backup plan. So that doesn't mean I think the Mets end up with Murphy, but maybe it means Daniel Murphy's in freaking Anaheim. And if he's in Anaheim, even if it's having an MVP season, it changes things. It, it's still bad. Don't get me wrong, but it's. I think it's a little but, less bad. Yeah, you have to see him as much as we did. And he just, like. I think we did. You do the interview with him. I know he was on the air a couple of years ago, um, and he talked about facing the Mets. That he, I think, there was like a. He felt like the purpose. He wanted to do his best. He wanted to get back at the. At the oh Mets yeah, and one. I, I but so yeah, like if he was away in Anaheim, if he was in anywhere else but like our division. We wouldn't have seen him as much. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So the numbers on what he did, I want to put the numbers to it because they're crazy. In 2016, he played all 19 games that the Mets and Nationals played against each other. In those 19 games, he hit 413 with seven home runs and 21 RBIs, an OPS of 1,218. Absurd. In 2017, he also played 19 games against the Mets, full a load of divisional games. His average went down to three to 354 with two home runs and 14 RBIs, an OPS of 1,040. <laughs> In 2018, he only played eight games against the Mets. He hit 364 with two home runs and eight RBIs, an OPS of 1,163. <laughs> and then 2019, when he was done, the Mets held him to three for 21. But in total, he hit 355 with 12 home runs, 44 RBIs, and a 1,061 OPS in 52 games. That means if you triple everything, that's 36 home runs and 130 RBIs over a full season. So it was, it's as bad as your memory tells you. Uh, one last thing about Murph there are theories. I do want to address them that the Mets didn't want Daniel Murphy back because of a controversy he was involved in during spring training of 2015, in which he openly said, I disagree. I think the phrasing was, I disagree with the lifestyle of those that are gay. And it caused a major backlash to the point where eventually the Mets said, Daniel Murphy will no longer be talking about not baseball issues. I, I don't know if that's the reason the Mets didn't want to re-sign him. And I know this is like a small example that doesn't necessarily prove my point. If you're out there and you think that's the reason the Mets didn't want to re-sign him, I'm not going to change your view. The Mets offered him the qualifying offer. And while that was a good baseball decision, he could have ended with him re-signing with the Mets. 
And when you look at the contract he ended up getting, Hoff mentioned three years, $39 million. It was actually less money per year than what he got would have gotten from the qualifying offer. He did get a three-year deal, so you understand the security of it. But if he had taken the qualifying offer and played on what was at the time $15 million, and had the same year, he would have made a ton more money. So he probably made a bad business decision. But I think if the Mets were dead set against him being on the team because of what happened, I don't think they make him the qualifying offer because I don't think they would have then allowed the possibility of Daniel Murphy coming back. I really think when Gary Cohen was on with us, because it happened, I think, with Joe and I, when he called him a net negative, I think he represented what the Mets thought of him. They didn't think he was that good. I know that's crazy based on what happened. They didn't think he was that good. They didn't think he was good defensively. They didn't think his pitch selection was smart. He had very few pitches per at-bat. They didn't think he was that good of a hitter, and they thought they could get better, and that's why they let him go. I don't even think it was the Mets being cheap, Pete. I think it was literally, they don't think he's good. And it's funny because I heard the counter of that because I'm like, oh, they need the, why didn't they bring back Murphy? Why did they bring him back? And everyone's like, but they offered him the qualifying offer. If he really wanted to be here, he would have just taken that. Like, I, I think you're right. No, he they did not want him here, and he felt it. And for whatever reason, he they didn't bring him back, and that was a big mistake. A big uh, mistake, probably not the right word, because I think a lot of these examples are guys that kind of were done, but it was still devastating. If you go back to 1989, the New York Mets traded Mookie Wilson, and that was also right after they had traded Lenny Dykstra, which just turned out to be a bad trade. I'm sure there were some kids who loved Lenny Dykstra, but the Lenny Dykstra for Juan Samuel trade is just an all-time sucky trade. That's what that comes down to. But when the Mets traded Mookie Wilson away, it looked like Mookie was done. He's 33 years old. He's hitting 205. He's just done. He goes to the Blue Jays, hits 300. <laughs> Actually played well for the final two months of the season and then played for two more years in Toronto in 1990 and in 1991. They got nothing back from Mookie. Jeff Musselman and Mike Brady, uh, I think, uh, Chris Carlin, our former coworker, I think that's the reason he gave up on the Mets. I think that was his story he used to tell, that he was a Met fan. They traded Mookie Wilson, and he was done. And he just said, I'm never rooting for them again. And that's what led him to being a Texas Ranger fan. So uh, it was a big deal, at least to him. And it was to a lot of Met fans. And I vaguely remember, because like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, 92-93 is when I really started remembering baseball. I have a vague memory. And I fact-checked it to know that it happened, that I was with my dad, my sister, and my mom at Shea Stadium prior to opening day for an exhibition game. And in the exhibition game, the New York Mets were playing the Toronto Blue Jays. And Mookie Wilson came up to the plate, and the stadium exploded. The moves were just raining down. It was crazy. And I, I did look it up. It happened. <laughs> and I fact-checked it. The moves. The moves were, well, I, I, that's a memory. But I fact-checked that I was there. My dad is as crazy as I am. He has records of every game he's ever been to and who was with him. So I fact-checked it. And I think it was, I didn't write it down. I apologize. I think it was 1990, if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, I was in the building for uh, an exhibition game prior to the start of the season. And the fans are going nuts, and they loved Mookie. And Mookie's just a beloved Met. I mean, obviously, he comes back as a coach. He's still around. He actually looked good during uh, Old-Timers Day. He was the best-looking player at Old-Timers Day. So, hold on. I think I'm, I I can find the actual date. I think I wrote it down. Games attended. Yes, I have it right here. You ready? It was. Give it to me. 
1991, April 6th. 1991, two days before opening day, uh, I saw Mookie Wilson make his return. So it was two years later because he was traded in 89, and there's no interleague play, obviously, back then. So it was 1991. And also looking at this, they also played the Yankees in 1989 before opening day. They used to do that a few times where they would open up Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium because I think the Yankees did it too. Uh, And they would play a game before the start of the season. 